America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Ah. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, not Chris Starwald, host of the Remnant podcast brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, please come to thedispatch.com to find out we are not why we are not just a floor wax. We are also a dessert topping. Um, Having just listened to uh, the episode of The Remnant that I was not on with Chris Darwald, I want to say that, A, thank you again to Chris for doing that. B, it was actually, I thought, a very good show, very much in The Remnant wheelhouse. And uh, C, I understand now better why people think we sound alike. It didn't really hit me until uh, my pre-recorded ads played, and part of it was the lack of a a better natural segue, but part of it is because uh, he does sound like a tribe of gypsies stole him from um, the Upper West Side of Manhattan um, and the crib next to my bedroom and speared him off to West Virginia to be raised um, in that fine and august state. Um, and when it would just, you know, partly because I don't hear my own voice very often because I don't listen to the podcast for obvious reasons. Um, uh, it was kind of weird to all of a sudden not be sure if he was doing the ad I did or if that was me because there was kind of seamless. Particularly, uh, I tried it at because some listeners said they did it at one and a half or two times speed. And there, uh, it really does shave out the accent and everything. And um, it's disturbing. So we're probably going to have to do, I don't know, maybe some hormone treatment or something for Chris to get his voice to change um, so that we're more easily uh, distinguished from one another. Um, I don't mean editorially or substantively. I just mean in plain old sort of pitch of voice. Um, so just full disclosure, I'm actually recording this on Thursday. Normally I do this at the end of the day on Friday after I finish the Friday G file. But we called an audible on our travel plans and we're actually going to be driving for decided to stay in Utah for an extra day. Um, we're staying at a, a, um, a sister-in-law's wonderful place in Utah, and um, we just decided that we would rather be here than just grind it out in the car again for another day. And um, so we leave tomorrow for Yosemite. Uh, very much looking forward to that, but uh, there was just no way I was going to put in that kind of day and then do uh, the G-File late at night. Uh, and that's the G file, the, the, the remnant podcast. So I'm recording this before the Friday G file. So I don't have the Friday G file to talk about, but then again, I am not exhausted the way I normally am when I've finished the Friday G file. So this is a, this is a, a natural experiment. Um, 
I did write the Wednesday G file, which if you were a paid member of the dispatch community, you would be able to read without um, having to beg your friends to forward it to you. Uh, and it was mostly keyed off of um, our my family trip to uh, the Rock and Roll Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the Cleave, and um, I call it the Cleave because ever since the um, episode of Thirty Rock where they go where they wing off to the Cleave, it's stuck in my head. Anyway, um, plus I, I like the Cleave, um, and I like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though it was so commercial and so sanitized and bourgeoisified. And that was sort of the point of, of the G-File is that, um, you know, in our culture, uh, both on the left and the right, we have this tendency to bemoan how um, commercialism, capitalism, commerce, whatever, um, uh, erodes higher values and virtues and um, the finer things and reduces things to a mere profit motive and how terrible that is. And, um, and obviously there's truth to a lot of that. Um, you know, it, it really depends on the context, um, and the specifics, but I, I think as a general proposition, you know, I mean, uh, when things start being run, you know, as a, as a purely commercial operation, that started out on a, as a higher from a higher principle. Sometimes th things get lost in the process. Um, that doesn't mean things aren't gained in the process, too. I mean, I'm sure that the original Big Macs were more lovely made when what's his name uh, was it Arthur Crock had one McDonald's franchise or two McDonald's franchises. Um, but now that there are, I don't know, fifty thousand McDonald's franchises. Uh, the Big Macs aren't as lovingly made, but they are cheaper and they are more available for people who want food. And, you know, there's costs and benefits to everything. Um, sort of on that note, I remember how dismayed I was when Kenny Rogers roasters went downhill. Um, it used to be a fantastic, much better than Boston Market, which also went downhill. Um, and I knew the second I saw them using a scale to weigh the slices of sliced turkey, that um, it wasn't going to be long before it turned into glorified cafeteria food. Anyway, um, I don't want to get into all that because it's such a familiar argument about how, um, you know, about how capitalism um, erodes, you know, faith in the finer things and, and all that. And I've talked about that a million times about how if you take the values of the gazelle shaft and you apply them to Gemeinschaft, you ruin the Gemeinschaft and yada, yada, yada. And we don't need to do all of that again. But what I wanted to point out was that it also works the other way, that if you, you know, for conservatives uh, who don't like, I don't know, like say British conservatives who don't like the gaudy sort of commercialness, commerciality um, of the monarchy, which is, you know, it's basically now just, a, um, you know, what do they call it? The firm. Um, it's lost a lot of its original meaning and role and function and is basically a glorified tourist operation in a lot of ways, or at least that's the criticism. And you can see how, I mean, I'm sympathetic in some ways to that, to that lament or that criticism, 
And I get it. And you can say the same thing about, you know, all sorts of things that conservatives decry about, you know, old time values being eroded um, by commerce. And of course, there are a, a zillion more left wing variants of all of that. Um, but in the same way that sort of conservative or traditional values and principles and virtues can be um, eroded over time by market forces. Um, there are radical, uh, dangerous, uh, whether you want to call them, you know, they're progressive ones, they're right-wing ones, they're left-wing ones, but there are all sorts of forms of radical thought that get, um, bourgeoisified and homogenized and made part of American, um, culture by the market as well. You know, I mean, this is, this is the other side of the Adam Smith argument that, you know, there are things about capitalism that actually encourage proper virtues. And uh, lots of people have opinions about how Smith was wrong about that, um, particularly in today's, um, you know, culture. But it's worth taking a second, which I did in the G-File, pointing out where he was right about that. And I mean, I always think it's funny. I remember when Ice Cube and Ice T and, uh, you know, these other gangster rappers who didn't have ice in their name um, were saying absolutely, you know, vile, um, ridiculous, um, pernicious uh, things about the United States of America. And this was, you know, before the current, you know, white supremacy conversation and all that. Um, and, you know, maybe I was too dismissive of some of it back then as a, you know, in the 1990s as a young 20 something or as a teenager. Um, but regardless, they had a profound radical pose. Um, I remember, you know, Ice-T wearing, um, uh, you know, a baseball hat that just said looters across the top after the L.A. riots. And, you know, he was one of these people who called it the L.A. rebellion and all that kind of thing. And he put out a track called Cop Killer. And, uh, you know, uh, Ice Cube was in NWA, which, of course, the N in that we're not allowed to say. Um, and, you know, you can go down the list about all that kind of stuff and all that sort of, you know, early, you know, gangster rap, black hip hop stuff. Um, and. And now, you know, Ice Cube is in a family-oriented sitcom based on his hit family-oriented movie, Are We There Yet? And um, Ice-T has played a remarkably dumb cop on uh, Law, Law & Order SVU for, I think it's SVU, it's one of those, um, for uh, at least a decade. Um, Snoop Dogg is... Um, you know, he's basically a comedic actor now. He's a pitch man for ve some vegan line of vegan food. Um, he, you know, he's done fun stuff with Martha Stewart. Um, he's essentially a game show host. And, um, and it's anyway, it's, for me, it's sort of, you know, it's, and of course I'm, I'm picking on the, the, the black figures now, but I mean, you go back and you look at what, you know, I don't know, Jim Morrison or, you know, uh, uh, Johnny Rotten or the Ramones or, or the clash, uh, you know, you can go back to all that crazy, you know, uh, you know, stuff that John Lennon was saying, and they're, they've all been turned into bourgeois products. Uh, you know, the list of ads that use their music to sell 
you know, uh, cleaning products and SUVs is, is endless. And there are people who want to denounce that stuff as hypocritical and selling out and all that. And I think, you know, yeah, there's some hypocrisy there for sure, particularly if they keep saying all this stuff about how capitalism is evil and America is evil or all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying, I'm not a strip attributing that to any of these specific artists because I have not done a deep dive in what the, you know, what, um, ice cubes, current political philosophy is never mind, you know, what, um, you know, whatever, whoever's left from the clash or, or the Ramones think about America right now, but you get the point. There was a time when rock and roll was, was proudly transgressive, proudly rebellious. It was talking about tearing down the system and not, you know, rock and roll rap, um, punk, all of that stuff. And, you know, they get older and it turns out that we're playing, you know, a lot of these people start playing at Indian casinos um, and, at, you know, all women's colleges to pay the rent or get their kids through school. And uh, I would rather live in a society where these people were hypocritical about um, their, you know, their alienation or their animosity towards capitalism while they were good capitalists than if they were actually consistent about it and stayed on the radical side. And that's one of the things that bourgeois liberal democratic capitalism does is it encourages people to focus on the stuff in their lives that actually matter. And it's, it's not just, I mean, forget rock and roll types and, 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 and hip hop and all that, you know, one of the only successful programs to get a terrorist group to completely turn its back on, um, terrorism on political violence was this, I can't remember what, which terrorist group it was, but I remember reading about it years ago and it was basically a program that found all these torqued up, angry young dudes, wives and, um, and gave them lots of marriage counsel. That wasn't like some forced thing, but it figured out how, if you give them jobs and wives and you give them a bourgeois, you know, middle-class normal incentive structure, they have something to protect. They have something to be invested in and they're less interested in blowing up school buses or, you know, motorcades or whatever. And that's one of the th nice things that liberal democratic capitalism does is that over time it rewards um, uh, putting aside the foolishness of, of intense radicalism, at least in your own private life. Now, the place where I think the hypocrisy is still problematic, and this is you know an old lament of mine, and it's a line I borrowed from Charles Murray, is that the problem with our elites and I think this is largely true these days of both left-wing and right-wing elites, though I think the problem is more pronounced and obvious with left-wing elites, um, is they have a really hard time um, preaching what they practice. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this a bunch about how, you know, divorce rates and all that kind of stuff for the top 10%, top 20%, pick your, pick your line, um, uh, you know, that's stopped being a problem for college educated elites, um, on a mass level decades ago. Um, most people, you know, it's the whole success sequence stuff. Most, most elites, um, regardless of political affiliation, uh, including, you know, all those Hollywood types, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, actually live pretty decent homebound bourgeois lives in practice. And they talk this whole other game in public because at the end of the day, 
so much of that radical nonsense is uh, marketing um, rather than, uh, you know, sincere conviction. And that's something that really bothers me is the trickle down effect where elites who, who live by fundamentally, basically bourgeois norms, but celebrate anti-bourgeois, anti-traditional um, uh, norms for everybody else. It's in effect, you know, it's taking a sledgehammer to the soapboxes that they're standing on. Um, but anyway, I, 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 I don't want to go in deep into all of that again. Um, instead, I want to talk about a little bit about sort of the culture stuff, you know? So like one of the points I made at the end of the G file, which I wrote again in the back of the car, um, was that that was on this sort of marketing point, right? This, I, this, 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 um, you know, the sort of politics as fashion point. And, you know, it was a kind of throwaway line that apparently just looking at the reaction on Twitter and from comments and stuff resonated with a lot of people is that, you know, in my life, I've known a lot of really, 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 really interesting, dynamic, um, unconventional in every sense thinkers who really, um, see the world through sort of visitor from Mars kind of perspective and have pretty radical notions. I mean, one of them to a certain extent was my dad, um, but who lived and looked like incredibly down to earth, small C conservative people. I mean, some of the most radical and interesting people out there, whether they're right or wrong about their political philosophy used to be the types of people who like walked around in bow ties um, and corduroy jackets and stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, look, I mean, I have, I have very complicated views about Murray Rothbard, but man, that guy, you know, who was like this, uh, you know, one of the founding fathers for good and for ill of a certain brand of libertarianism in the United States, that guy was radical. Um, you know, Harry Jaffa, too. I mean, I didn't know him personally. I didn't know Rothbard personally either. But if if you were some hipster teenager um, looking at uh, at Harry Jaffa from across the street, you'd think he was an accountant rather than a sort of brilliant, um, you know, political philosopher, uh, you know, radical in a lot of ways. When I say radical, I don't mean in the, well, in some ways I do mean radical, but I just mean that he was a completely unconventional and, and innovative, inventive thinker. Uh, he just didn't wear a uniform that we associate with that kind of crap. Meanwhile, some of the most boring, conventional, trite people I've ever met in my life look like, first of all, first of all, a lot of them have very important hair. Um, and they look like they're super radical. And, you know, I, this is one of these things I kind of learned in high school and college was that there are some people who try to purchase radicalism. I mean, I, again, I mean radicalism not as a political philosophy, but I just mean as sort of like being rebellious. Um, they try to purchase it on the cheap by putting on the uniform without ever going to practice, as it were. You know, um, I remember noticing you know, when I lived in, I lived very briefly, I lived in Prague and, um, 
the number of posers you'd see all over the place um, who like never turn the page of the book, you know, the, 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 you know, some Marxist book they were ostentatiously reading at a cafe and you realize that they weren't actually reading it. They were just sort of using it as a prop for a lot of those people. I mean, that was one of my biggest complaints about being in Prague and I loved being in Prague. And again, I wasn't there that long, you know, not nearly as long as someone like Matt Welch from reason or something like that. But, um, one of my biggest complaints about Prague was that I thought it was because it was such a cool place to be at such a cool time in history that I was going to meet an enormous number of people, uh, an enormous number of interesting people. And part of the problem was, is while I did meet a bunch of really interesting people, I also met far more people who thought being there would make them interesting. And, um, and so I, I, I think this is like one of these points that I just think is so important, particularly to sort of impress upon teenagers is that, you know, looking the part is often a sign of not actually being able to play the part. Uh, you know, if you, if some people overcompensate for their desire to be sort of rad and hip and transgressive by wearing the costume precisely because they can't do it in their own thinking in their own, um, actions. And, um, uh, and I think that that's one of these things that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of like the broader culture, because I'm in, I'm increasingly interested in looking at American culture outside of the right left prism. And look, don't get me wrong. This is part of my job and it's, I've invested a lot of man hours, um, in, you know, right versus left and importance of political philosophy and all these kinds of things. And I think they're still very important, but I also think they obscure other things. You know, when you shine a light on something, you also um, cast a shadow. And when you shine a light on the left-right divide in our culture war politics, which is real, obviously, um, you cast a shadow that obscures other interesting things. I'll give you an example. Um, I think big swaths of our popular culture are more conservative than either the left or the right want to concede when they have their political uniforms on or their political, you know, hats on. Um, you know, one of the examples I've used for years, um, and they keep trying to prove me wrong. And as of yet, I haven't seen evidence that I've been wrong, but they keep trying is how Hollywood, which I think we can all agree as a generalization, Hollywood is wildly pro-choice and pro-abortion. Um, and yet you look at how abortion is treated in uh, sort of mainstream pop culture, particularly sitcoms, and it is, it is really kind of astounding. It's, it's, you know, like, you know that thing about how um, – I think it was Chekhov said that if you introduce introduce a gun in the first act, it's got to be used by the third act because you've just sort of set up the audience to have that expectation. Um, writers for uh, focusing primarily here on sitcoms, right? So writers of sitcoms do not want to deliver downers. And so if you're going to write in a character 
or if you're going to have a, one of the main characters get pregnant, right? Odds are you're not doing it because in a couple episodes, they're going to have an abortion because that's a downer and it's a downer, whatever, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, it is, you know, and I know there are a lot of stand-up comics who try to make it funny and they've done a bunch of things. People keep you know sending me examples of quote unquote comedies about abortion, trying to make abortion funny, but, um, you know, and maybe they tried something on Roseanne and I missed it, but every time I've ever paid attention to this, the, the general rule is that, you know, when Rachel gets pregnant on friends, there's, you have to have this boilerplate about what are you going to do? Um, you know, are you going to keep it? Are you not going to keep it? Blah, 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 blah. But if they weren't going to keep it, they wouldn't have written the character as getting pregnant in the first place. And so um, they decide to keep it fine. That's their choice, right? You know, I'm not trying to get into the politics of abortion here, but they decide to keep it. Um, and the moment a character in a sitcom uh, says, I'm keeping my baby, as Madonna might say, um, they immediately start talking about the baby as if it is a fully realized human being with rights and we have to do everything we can to protect it. And, you know, there's a profound philosophical point here about abortion is that if, if, if it's a human being, it's like Schrodinger's cat, right? It can't, or a, baby, a fetus can't be like Schrodinger's cat where, you know, simply by deciding it's a human being, it becomes a human being. Um, either the, either the, baby or the fetus or the embryo that, you know, that Rachel is carrying around in friends was a human being before she decided to declare she was keeping it or wasn't. And, um, regardless the fact that, you know, like my, um, my, one of my, I think I wrote about this, you know, uh, in big bang theory, when, uh, when Wallowitz and Bernadette have, uh, their first baby, um, you know, one of the the first things that Wallowitz says when he finds out that she's pregnant, I think I'm remembering this right, is, oh my gosh, we made a person. And I'm sure that the makers of Big Bang Theory, which has all sorts of stuff that conservatives can roll their eyes at or dislike, we're not trying to make some profound pro-life point. It's just simply that it's very difficult to write about pregnancy and these kinds of things in a show that is supposed to leave the viewer liking all of the characters and feeling good about the storyline, um, if it's going to be an abortion. And that should tell you a little bit about the moral sense and moral sentiments of the audience and of the instincts of the artists, of the writers. Because if you, if they, I have to assume that politically, if they thought they could get away with having different storylines, we would see a lot more storylines. And you do see some in like, in, you know, in, in dramas and whatnot. And that, that's, that's fine. But when you have them in dramas, nine, nine, nine times out of 10, whenever I've seen it, it's a very um, uh, earnest, severe decision with lots of remorse and regret and second thoughts and all of these kinds of things. And that too is not uh, in alignment with the ideological political positions of, you know, the sort of hardcore democratic left in Hollywood. But when you try to translate these kinds of 
hypotheticals and abstractions into real life, um, regardless of your political ideology, you actually have to make it fit the culture and fit people's natural moral sentiments and moral senses. And that means compromising some of that ideological abstraction. Um, and, you know, there's a guy, I've always had mixed views about Paul, some of Paul Cantor's stuff. I mean, I think he's a brilliant guy. He's this uh, English professor. I think he's still at UVA. But he's written a lot about popular culture. And um, I like a lot of his stuff, but there was always something about the way he wrote about some of it that was taking it a little too seriously, even for me. And um, But he he makes this point that I'm trying to drive at about culture, American culture being more than just this left-right stuff. Um, I remember him making this point a long time ago about the walking dead, about how, you know, what comes through in the walking dead is um, all of these themes that, you know, as a conservative, I find them somewhat, um, uh, I'm, I'm receptive to some of them. Um, I'm, I find them congenial in some respects, you know, about how in The Walking Dead, uh, one of the takeaways is, is that the state can't really save you when nature comes roaring back or that um, there is something, excuse me, innately decent about Americans in a crisis where all of a sudden a lot of our sort of racial and ethnic and, and gender differences melt away. Um, there's also like this is hardcore pragmatic can do spirit of America that's in the walking dead. I mean, again, I haven't read this thing in I don't know 10 years or whatever, but uh, I think there's a lot to that. You know, I think that if you were a visitor from Russia and you came to the United States and um, you just observed Americans being Americans and doing things the way Americans do them, um, you would have a very hard time watching them and saying, oh, that person must be a Democrat and that mu person must be a Republican, except in terms of some gross stereotypes about, you know, pickup trucks or cowboy boots or whatever. And even then you can be wrong a lot. Um, but there are just things about America that are um, part of American culture and they may have different, you know, uh, values or weight when you apply the right left culture war prism. But if you don't apply that prism, it's actually kind of interesting. And, um, and, or let me put it this way, I'm interested in it. Um, and I think that, you know, this is one of these things that to bring it back into politics, I think both, um, both, no, my, my computer wants me to restart right now, and I don't want to. Um, I think this is one of the biggest problems for both parties. Um, though Biden is better at it than Obama was, um, uh, but nonetheless, I think both parties have a problem about how to talk about American culture uh, without it being a, uh, well, from Democrats often, a denunciation. I mean, again, I don't think Biden does this, but there are lots of people in the Democratic Party who talk about American culture as if, like, that's 
something we have to get past and get over um, and transcend. Um, and there are a lot of people on the Republican side who talk about American culture as if it only applies to the sort of stereotypical red state version of what American culture is. And, um, and that doesn't speak to, first of all, the majority of Americans who don't, you know, drive over creek beds in their pickup trucks, um, but actually live in urban or, 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 you know, inner suburbs. Um, and, you know, what I think about it, I like, I remember when Kamala Harris was running, um, in the primaries and she had this line, it was part of her book. It was, her, it, she thought it was incredibly profound. Um, and about how to, you know, and it was always on the topic of, you know, it was whenever she was asked about partisanship and polarization and Trump and yada, 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 um, she would say very earnestly, very straight faced, um, look, the important thing for Americans to remember is that we are still, there are more things that unite, that unite us than to divide us. And I like that point, And I agree with that. I would like to agree with that point, And I think I still agree with that point. But then <laughs> she goes off the rails when she talks about her examples and her examples were things like, we all worry in the middle of the night about our retirement. We all worry in the middle of the night about whether our kids are going to be safe or healthy. We all worry about, um, you know, uh, you know, whether we're going to get sick and all these kinds of things. And I, first of all, I don't know that we all worry about these things, but as a cliched generalization. Okay. We all worry about these things, but you know who else worries about all of these things? All human beings on the planet. Uh, there is nothing, there was nothing in her litany. And I'm, you know, I can't remember all of it right now, but I remember, I wrote about it at the time and I remember laughing at it every time I heard at it, heard it. There was nothing in her examples that were actually examples of things that unite Americans. Um, distinctly, right? That unite Americans in ways that do not unite all Westerners or all North Americans or all bipedal sentient life forms on this planet. Um, it was basically reducing the things that unite all Americans to core biological or economic needs, regardless of culture. And I don't think that she was trying to do vulgar Marxism or anything, you know, or anything like that. I just think that they poll tested some stuff. She couldn't come up with anything um, or her team couldn't come up with anything that was distinctly about American culture that wouldn't be either problematic in the primaries or just difficult for her to sell. Um, and, you know, and this is the thing that gets me back to American exceptionalism. You know, there used to be, this understanding that American exceptionalism isn't, it wasn't rah, rah, we're exceptional. We're, you know, we're the best, um, which is about, you know, Donald Trump originally understood it. It's how a lot of Democrats understood it. Um, uh, it was that we're different. We're just weird. I mean, it was American exceptionalism, uh, you know, described all sorts of bad things about America, about how we were more violent, Right. It also described a lot of good things about America. We were the most religious, even though um, we were industrialized and had an advanced economy. And the you know, decline in religion was supposed to go in tandem with those things, and it didn't in America. 
although now America is catching up in all sorts of ways. Um, and it just seems to me that you should, that if you're a politician speaking, trying to unite the entire country and, um, and speak to all Americans, regardless of who they voted for coming up with, uh, something that binds us all together beyond, um, well, we all get hungry. We all hate paper cuts. Uh, we, none of us want to get sick. Uh, it seems to me that you should be able to come up with something like that. And, um, it's very difficult to hear, to find politicians on the left or the right who are even interested in that kind of project. And I think the only reason, or one of the only reasons why Biden is interested in, in speaking that way is because he's so freaking old and nostalgic and it, and because Donald Trump set the table for him in a way that made it possible for that kind of rhetoric to work. Um, I'm not saying he doesn't believe it. Uh, I, I think he does at some, you know, basic level. Um, and when I talk about, you know, the way he talks to all Americans, you know, when he talks about China, about how, you know, you know we're the United States of America. We don't, you know we can rise to any challenge that they come up with. And he talks about the basic decency of, of Americans and he tries to deescalate, right. You know, sort of red state and blue state stuff. And yeah, some of it is just poll tested, um, more folksy version of, of the Obama stuff. But I think he sells it better than Obama did. Um, because he doesn't seem to see it as an abstraction so much as the kind of retail, um, politics that that he cut his teeth on in delaware um anyway uh i had another point in my head and i can't remember what it was um so what else oh so just for the record um because a bunch of people keep writing me about whether i'm okay they, uh, they read the g file and they're like oh my gosh why did you sleep in the parking lot of a walmart and blah 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 and i i think just sort of explain this a little bit. Um, I've done this a couple times, a few times, not counting when we rented an RV. Uh, my wife and daughter, when they've gone off on like mommy daughter adventures kind of things, particularly during the pandemic, they've done this. Lots of Walmarts have a policy about letting people sort of uh, park in the in their parking lots. They're well lit. They're kind of they're they're safe, whatever. And um, you know, the weird thing for me personally is that my wife is not high maintenance at all, um, except really for two things, um, hotels and air travel, and that can get pricey pretty quickly. And, um, and so I, you know, I was giving her a grief about this the other night. I was like, you know, we can afford there's look, there's like an embassy suites right there. We can, we can stay there. And part of my wife's thing is one, she thinks, and I think she's right about this. It's a fun Goldberg adventure. You know, we, we, we stock up, we load up stuff in the car and, um, um, and it's particularly during the pandemic, you don't have to expose yourself to other people. And it's kind of like, you know, camping out in your backyard kind of thing. And she makes the point is like, you know, she hates these sort of, you know, low and mid market hotels. I got no problem with them. I've been in 10,000 of them. Um, but during the pandemic, she just doesn't like being in them. And she'd rather just sort of do this fun, quirky, weird thing in the car. And then there's also the sort of the logistical advantage, which is that if you wake up 
as I do, I wake up very early, usually hours before my wife and daughter do. If you wake up in front of the steering wheel, it's very easy to get on the road very quickly um, without waking everybody up and loading the car and all that kind of thing. And this is something that we learned um, on, in our cross-country adventures uh, when my daughter was very young, when she was a baby, in fact. You know, we would drive cross-country. We'd usually um, get it when we, had, when we were hurrying. We would get to the, the, the dock in Anacortes, which is where you get the ferry to get to the, the San Juan Islands. We would usually, um, you know, get there, I want to say halfway into the third day on the road, something like that, if we were really hauling. And the trick that we learned was you wake up crazy early, the baby or the toddler goes back to sleep if you get in the car at 4 a.m. The roads are empty, particularly west of the Mississippi. Um, the dog sleeps too, back when we used to travel with Cosmo the Wonder Dog. And you can put in three, 400 miles um, in the morning. You can put in 200 miles before coffee and breakfast. And um, you can put in at least that much more before lunch. You have lunch. And then you've already broken the back of the day. And you can manage to get to where you're going for the night at a fairly decent hour so that you can have a cocktail and you can walk the dog or you can play with your kid or whatever. And we've sort of put that into our, you know, this is one of these techniques that we learn. And so anyway, the reason why I woke up in a car is because I, you know, that was, that was the plan was to do it that way. And, um, I will admit that this trip, I mean, because we did not plan on I-80 being closed, um, some of the driving got a little excessive on this trip and we got one more crazy day to go because we're going to drive from Park City to Yosemite. But um, anyway, I just, there were a lot of people concerned about, you know, what's going on. And, you know, you know part of it was, you know, this is our last spring break before my daughter goes off to college. Um, and we wanted some sort of family adventure. And we've done cross-country road trips a lot of times. We like this, doing this kind of thing. We like seeing the country. Um, part of it was just sort of a cost savings thing because the, um, uh, you know, because we needed to do a cost, you know, we, we couldn't. We couldn't afford to spend the money to go someplace lavish, particularly when most places lavish um, aren't a good value given the pandemic and all that kind of thing. And uh, and we like this. We like seeing the country. We like doing this crazy stuff. I admit it's weird. And there are certainly days where you're like, why are we doing this? Um, and it's not that much of a cost savings anyway, because you could fly someplace pretty easily and pretty cheaply. And filling up on gas two or three times a day, you know, starts to add up too. But anyway, it's, it's, it's what, it's what one of the things the Goldbergs do and we like it and you get, you know, I was talked about this on the, the, the weird remnant I did with uh, Nick and Guy yesterday. Um, you know, you're reminded of what a big, cool, interesting country this is. And in fact, you're reminded of the fact that there are a lot of things that unite Americans as a culture um, that just don't track very well with the left-right stuff. And um, I like seeing that stuff. I like being reminded of that stuff. I think it's fun. Um, I do feel bad about leaving um, you know, my colleagues in a lurch a little bit back home, but I'm trying to hit all of my um, work obligations as best I can. And um, anyway, that's about that. Uh, what else? I wrote a column today about uh, 
earmarks very quickly. I used to be against earmarks. I, w- I thought it was a good thing that the GOP banned earmarks. Um, for reasons that I've talked about on the podcast a couple times, I think that, you know, the ideal way to do earmarks, I mean, the, the, one of the benefits of earmarks is, is that they actually allow members of Congress to see themselves as doing something other than uh, maintenance of an ideological brand, right? I mean, it's, it's getting rid of earmarks isn't what caused polarization or dysfunction, but it contributed to it because at least it used to be if you were a right winger or a left winger in Congress, you could still make an appeal to non-right wingers or left wingers, people outside of your tribe, if you brought the big community rec center and swimming pool to town, you know, if you, um, uh, if you got that, uh, bypass that connects, you know, the beltway or whatever in the district, if you brought, if you brought home the bacon, um, people, you know, voters could look at you in non-ideological ways, even if you were ideological. But when you got rid of earmarks, it was part of this larger problem of getting rid of any responsibility to legislate or to, um, you know, actually do the job of being a legislator of governing and of oversight and all that kind of stuff. And so, and as the, the pressures came to care more about winning primaries than winning general elections, um, the inability to, uh, bring home the bacon to your district, uh, left you only able to sort of campaign on being on the right side of the MSNBC audience or the, or the Fox news audience or whatever it is, rather than being someone who um, puts the interests of his district first. If there's no opportunity to really do, you know, district-oriented, you know, legislating and, and work, uh, you end up having to be just sort of part of some national team or tribe. And so, you know, I was, I, 10 years ago, I was in favor of getting rid of earmarks because I bought into the notion that they were, not just symbolic, but actually part of the growth of government and all that. And it turns out um, that just was never true, that when they got rid of earmarks, spending for the most part went up, a few places it went down, but it had nothing to do with with lack of earmarks. Um, Earmarks were always basically just sort of a symbolic thing. But, you know, part of my argument for wanting to bring back earmarks is that if you could bribe congressmen with a bridge or um, a monorail in every district uh, in exchange for real entitlement reform, we would be saving money. It would be pennies on the dollar in terms of how much we saved um, in terms of debt and deficit uh, spending. And, and so you would think, as I read in the column, you'd think I'd be excited by the news that broke, you know, that this week the Republicans, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans, all except 18 members voted uh, to support earmarks again. The Democrats brought earmarks back and the Republicans voted to want to be part of the process. And the reason why I am not overjoyed by this is because the reason that they wanted to do this is that the infrastructure bill is coming and Democrats are trying to buy bipartisan support um, by letting congressmen, I mean, I'm sure they want earmarks for their own you know, interests, but also they want to basically use, I mean, it's not corrupt bribery, it's political bribery um, or political transactionalism to get Republicans to buy into the infrastructure bill, which 
it's hard to find an actual price tag for this thing, but Goldman Sachs thinks it's going to be between two and four trillion dollars over ten years. Um, and so they've agreed. You know, the Democrats said you can bring up to ten in the Appropriations Committee. You can bring up to ten earmarks for your district. And you know, to their credit, you have to be um, uh, you have to be transparent about it. You can't have financial, personal financial interest. Yada yada yada. Um, it has to be public what you're asking for, but you can ask for 10 earmarks for your district in this thing. And look, I mean, I'm, I'm of two minds about infrastructure spending, qua infrastructure spending and, you know, of the things that government could spend money on. It bothers me less than a lot of other things. At the same time, we just like a week ago passed a $1.9 trillion stimulus behemoth that had only fractionally to do with um, the pandemic or even economic relief for the pandemic. Um, that was on top of some three and a half trillion that we've already spent in the previous year on uh, the pandemic in terms of the CARES Act and all that stuff and PPP and yada, yada, yada. And that's on top of one budget busting year after another throughout the Obama and Trump presidencies. And like my argument for wanting, I mean, there are other, there, there are good government arguments that I think bringing back earmarks makes some sense. And maybe this is baby steps, but on the broader picture, it is very depressing that Republicans agree to do this solely because they figure this money is going to be spent anyway. And so they want buy-in for additional trillions of money that we are going to borrow from China, um, it makes you know the idea that either party cares about debt and deficits. I know this is I'm a broken horse about this, but it's now just completely dead. And and so here's the last thing I want to raise, and then I'm going to get out of here. Um, look, I, I Ramesh Panuru is one of my friends who I trust about inflation stuff and monetary policy and he and the people he cites who I also, you know, trust tell me, and so does the fed, you know, just this week, uh, they tell me that we shouldn't be worried about inflation and, um, and I trust them or at least the very least I am not ready to do my homework enough to come up with an alternative theory about why he's wrong. But there's just a point that needs to be sort of, made out there that I don't see anybody really making. Let's say for the sake of argument, Ramesh and the Federal Reserve and, and Janet Yellen, whatever, they're all right and that we don't need to worry about um, inflation in the near term, despite the fact that, you know, we've spent, you know, more in the last year than the GDPs of most advanced developed countries in the world. Um, fine. Inflation is not coming. There's something about the magic of computers and the internet and, and I don't know, Bitcoin and Framfors and Queen Estrays and yada, yada, yada. Fine. Inflation is not coming. There's still a problem of a politics that has convinced itself that inflation is not a problem, right? It's sort of like that old, William F. Buckley line I like to quote where he was arguing about privatizing lighthouses and he was saying, you know, a nation that is obsessed 
with arguing about whether or not we should privatize lighthouses probably won't socialize medicine. Um, well, a nation that is worried about the potential of inflation probably won't dump trillions of dollars on an already robust economy that is set to take off. Um, and, uh, if you say to people that, oh, you don't have to worry about inflation, that takes one more reason why, um, you shouldn't have to worry about spending. And, um, the fact that we haven't had inflation, the fact that our debt and deficit spending hasn't yielded a debt crisis, um, on the one hand, it's a very good thing. I don't want a debt crisis, right? I don't want one for, I don't want one for me. I don't want one for my daughter. I don't want one for my country. But I just have a hard time believing that we have repealed the sort of fundamental laws of, of economics and of supply and demand and, and whatever the witchcraft is of monetary policy and all these kinds of things that at some point Herb Stein's law has to kick in, which is that which cannot go on forever must eventually stop. And I would rather live in a country that worried about inflation needlessly than live in a country um, that didn't worry about inflation. And you just have to wait and see whether that's stupid or not. And in my gut, I have to think that there's something stupid about all that. Um, and that's not an argument for some noble lie where we should tell people inflation is something to worry about um, when it isn't. But it is an argument for the pressing need to come up with better arguments for why we can't keep spending money the way we are. Because I don't know what form the consequences for all of this overspending and borrowing is going to take. But in my gut, my ample gut, uh, I have to think it's unsustainable and the price for it is going to be something that we do not enjoy. And the fact that neither party has either the credibility or the desire to find the credibility to make a serious argument about why government should live within its means is something that I find very depressing and, um, and doesn't get nearly the attention that I think it deserves. Um, all right. So enough with all that. I probably should have done that easier and ended with a nice thing about how there's more American culture that unites us that we don't see, yada, yada, yada. But I got this stuff out of whack because I make it up as I go along. Um, I'm gone next week as well, uh, but I will be continuing to um, file and record as best I can whenever I can. Uh, one of the nice things about the life I've chosen is that I can spend a lot of time with my family and I can do my job for the most part from anywhere. One of the bad things about the life I've chosen is that I can do my job from almost anywhere. And so when I'm on vacation, I'm never fully on vacation. Um, or at least it's very, very rare. Um, and, uh, but the dispatch means the world to me and, um, and if you guys can be, who aren't members yet could become members, uh, that would be just fantastic. And um, thanks again to Chris Starwalt for um, subbing in for me. He may have to come in again next week. I don't know. 
Um, at the very least, I should have him back on as a guest because it's a, it's interesting how many people really like our our strange chemistry um, in a totally platonic way. Um, but there it is. So anyway, uh, thanks again for listening, and um, I'll see you next time. <laughs>